You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast. From the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C., I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, the museum brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. Join us as we take a closer look at the secret world of intelligence. Today's SpyCast is sponsored yet again by Blue Apron, a better way to cook. We're joined today by Lori Kloon, who's an associate professor of history at California State University, Fresno. She focuses her academic research and teaching on Cold War America, McCarthyism, espionage, propaganda, psychological warfare, U.S. diplomatic history, and teaching history, which is, sounds boring, but it's one of the coolest fields of history that there is. She is the author of a new book, Executing the Rosenbergs, Death and Diplomacy in a Cold War World. And knowing a fairly decent amount about this case, I can confidently say this book brings an entirely new perspective to this story, which hasn't been highlighted before. So thank you, Lori, for coming and joining us today on SpyCast. Thank you so much. It is absolutely a pleasure to be here. Whenever we have an author, I ask two broad questions, and and the questions are more for me in many respects, but also for our budding authors out there, our students, our our historians who are thinking about studying this. And in your case, the questions can probably be combined. So the first one tends to be, what was the inspiration for this book? Why another book on the Rosenbergs? Why do we have any kind of new information? And the second one is about sources. Whenever you're talking about intelligence research, source material is always the real bugaboo. The idea is this is not information that is intended to be seen by most people. So I think I'm, I'm guessing here, but by reading the book and understanding where you found this information, these are this is probably a combined question for you. Yes, it is. And and I think, it, as, as you probably know, it's not the book I set out to write. I, I think I've always been interested in the Rosenberg case, as many, because it's such a compelling case. Um, but it was not something that I sat down in grad school and said, I'm totally going to write another. Because like you said, it just seems like, do we need another book? Um, I was very inspired by Mary Dudziak's Cold War Civil Rights. And it kind of blew my mind. The idea that What was happening in the United States, simply put, looked bad overseas, right at a time when we were so desperately trying to look really good, right, to to keep our allies happy and to court those in what we used to call the third world. So I thought, well, okay, civil rights, for sure, the dreadful things that we looked horrific around the world. But then I thought, there must be other things that the United States has done that we didn't look so good. 
Um, and that list got really long really quickly, <laughs> unfortunately. Um, but I was focusing on things like um, uh, keeping J. Robert Oppenheimer from having his security clearance when he came out against the development and, and testing of the hydrogen bomb, for example, or withholding Paul Robeson's passport for 10 years because of his left-wing outspoken views. Um, things like that. Charlie Chaplin not letting him back in the country for what I think it was Dallas said, moral turpitude, <laughs> or maybe Acheson. Um, so, you know, there were several cases that I thought, well, these are interesting. And, and, and frankly, what was the view of Joseph McCarthy, you know, at the height of his adventures and accusations? What, what were our allies saying? You know, I, th I thought that would be interesting. And so the Rosenbergs were just one of many uh, pieces into that. And so um, went to College Park, Maryland, National Archives to all the State Department stuff, because if somebody's complaining and protesting overseas, they're contacting the American embassy at that location. Those diplomats are writing back to Washington going, what should we do? It seems like this is a bit of an issue. How should we handle it? That kind of thing. So you have to go through these dreadful little, no, no offense to the archivists, lovely that we have them, but the name card <laughs> indexes are really annoying. It, it, it sounds like a name card, but really it's like tissue paper crammed into these like shoebox looking things. And so you go through and, and, you know, you pull out Joseph McCarthy. Okay. So from 1950 to 1954, there are about 50 name cards. Uh, that means uh, that mentioned Joseph McCarthy, McCarthy. So that means that there were diplomats overseas who were getting enough complaints or protests or petitions that they then wrote back to DC and said, hey, what should we do about this? So at least 50. Okay. So I go through and there's a couple for Charlie Chaplin and there's probably a dozen for J. Robert Oppenheimer and there's upwards of two dozen for Paul Robeson. And so I'm thinking, oh, this is cool. So I can do a dissertation and look at this, each of these cases. And so I get to the Rosenbergs and I look and there's nothing. So it goes from Rosenberg, Berta to Rosenberg, Ludwig, because you can't make that up. I mean, right. that's just crazy. And so I thought, and unfortunately, this was like my first visit. So I'm really green. And College Park can be a little overwhelming, oh, yeah. Yeah. right? So I spent a lot of time there. Yeah. And, and so you're just like this grad student going, okay, you know, and, and all the archivists look very busy. And, and I tried one and he was like, well, that's weird. And just didn't know what to make of it. And I... Finally got the, the ear of uh, David Pfeiffer, who focuses on the State Department. And I, I explained the situation. And I said, you know, what's weird about this is that we know there's a document written by Ambassador Dillon in Paris in May of 1953. It's a famous document because it actually was forwarded by Dulles to the White House. So I had read it in Abilene, Kansas. So you know it exists. So if that exists, it should be, there should be a name card right. for that. And so when there is zero, <laughs> zero made no sense. And it wasn't until he heard that and then he said, well, let's check with Fruce, you know, Foreign Relations of the mm -hmm. U.S. We pulled that up. I'm convinced now that the three that are in there are actually mislabeled and that's how they found them by accident. And he was like, that doesn't make sense. You know, so months later, he emails me and says, I think I found something that might be what you were looking for. And of course, I'm in California teaching. My sister lives in Maryland. I said, hey, <laughs> can you actually have to take a day off 
and go through, as you know, the training to be able to go into the special right. room to look. He said there were two boxes. I said, you know, you know, two boxes could be two pieces of paper. We don't know. So my amazing sister says, sure, I will go in. I will. She's not a historian. I will go in. I will do the training. And she said, I'll bring my camera. I'll take pictures. Fifteen hours later, <laughs> <laughs> uh, we've got upwards of 900 documents that no historian has really been able to use because right. the name cards were missing. And we still don't know why they're missing. Um, you know, depends on how conspiratorial you want to be. Somebody removed them. That seems pretty obvious. Everybody's pretty clear about that. Of course, the archivists are like, well, it wasn't us. Right. So it must have been the State Department. Um, but then these are declassified in the 70s. And so you wonder if those people who declassified it knew that the name cards were missing. We don't know. And, right. I, you know, I can't. All I know is that we haven't been able to talk about this massive global protest movement until now. And it's such a I'm honestly I'm delighted to be able to be able to share this because I think it's a really cool story. Yeah. I mean, that's like the holy grail for a historian is right. finding something no one has ever seen before. <laughs> and th something like this. I love this story because it happened somewhat similar to me. And the archivists get so excited. They're, they, it's like a, a detective story, like, ooh, let's hunt this stuff down. And I had people looking for me for days, and they finally found it. They're like, we found it. Because like, they want they yeah. to find I mean, they want the story to be told as well. And so the, the following summer, when I got to see the documents myself, because, of course, at that point, up until then, I was looking at them electronically through, as my sister sent them in 10 right. piece, you know, email, 10 per email to me over God, weeks it seemed like and printing them out and kind of trying to organize them um i went and met with david pfeiffer and said you know so how did you find these and he looked at me and he said it was an intelligent guess and then he noticed i was writing and he said we would put very intelligent <laughs> <laughs> and i thought this this man is absolutely adorable and i really have no idea i mean it, you know it's like a needle in a haystack right. in there i mean that's if you don't have the but he kept like tacking at it in different ways when he had a moment and just trying to kind of and and i think at one point like in an area he thought they might be and literally looked up and saw that it said these Julius guys hate not knowing where something is yes. it's like one of these things that just digs at them right. and that's what makes them great archivists right. like, and how i mean the, and he said then he turns to me and says so did that stuff work out for you <laughs> and i thought oh my god and i looked him right in the eye and said david you made my dissertation possible and it's not even a manuscript. The dissertation wasn't even done yet. And Oxford was talking to me yeah. about publishing it. So this is, I am very well aware that I am an incredibly lucky person. And I hope other historians, now that they're, you can find out where they are, right. can use them to, I mean, there's so many stories, I think, to be right. told Right, and I think there. that, you know, you took one approach, but there's probably 10, 15 other approaches that you could take based on that and everything else that we know. Yeah. Let, let's, uh, most People, we have very, very intelligent listeners, not pandering at all. Uh, <laughs> most people understand the story, but let's lay out the context a little bit uh, before we move on. To really put the case in context for the listener, most people don't quite understand, even if they have the history behind this, that the time of incredible fear that this is taking place in. Everything from the Soviet bomb to China to Korea, uh, the bullets and atomic scientists, their doomsday clock, the closest has ever been to midnight. You mean tell, you tell in the book, and I've read it there before, but you do a great job in laying out the fact that California schools were giving dog tags to kids so they could identify their charred remains in a nuclear so attack. Horrifying. Yeah, it's, oh it's terrible. I mean, you think of duck and yeah. cover and go, ha, ha, ha. Yeah, but no, but they were taking you. it to that next level. Absolutely. And then, of course, McCarthyism is just 
you know the the umbrella that of shame that goes over all of this and and um we can get into McCarthy, but we won't because we let's not give him any credit whatsoever for anything other than being lucky. Mm-hmm. So the the Rosenberg case falls within this broader concept. But one other thing that's really important to talk about is that Julius Nethel Rosenberg weren't committed or weren't convicted of treason. They weren't convicted of espionage. They're convicted of this really arbitrary, who the hell knows what it means, conspiracy <laughs> to commit espionage. Um, can you talk a little bit about that and, and how the sentences seemed especially harsh for what crime they were committed? Right. I think I, I think the, you hit on the fear and the panic is essential to me to understand. And it, it, it's kind of when you teach, the, and I've taught this case enough, that students just go, why would they go? Look at these pictures of mom. Right. They've got two kids. What, seriously, how could they? Well, if you take the fear away, it does seem crazy. Right. Fear, of course, as we know, is a horrific motivator to do dreadful things. But at least I'm not saying what, what was done was correct, but I'm saying we can understand. We can look and say, you know what, I get Truman sitting there going, I feel that this is getting out of control. I must grab whatever spies I can get my hands on. And, of course, it's because of Ethel's brother that there's enough evidence to cling to them and make an example, convinced that they gave the bomb to the Soviets. The Soviets then turned to North Korea and said, invade South Korea, we have your back. And by threatening them with death, we can get them to talk and name all these other spies. Um, It seems to me it's always a, we'll arrest Julius. We know he runs a spy ring. He's not going to talk. Okay, we'll arrest his sister or his wife, rather. you know, that'll pressure him, right? Mm. He's not going to want to leave his children without parents. Doesn't talk. Okay, we'll threaten them both with execution. Sentence them to death. Okay. Still don't talk. Still don't talk. And, of course, they die, and we they get nothing. So I would argue, and I do argue, that not only do we not get them to talk, because as Katie Sibley very succinctly put it, dead spies don't talk. Right. So we don't get them to talk. They don't name the other spies. We can't go after the rest of his ring, which goes on to do all kinds of really interesting things, as Steve Usden has very clearly laid out. Um, So we don't get him to name them. They become martyrs for the Soviet Union. Uh, And that's when the Soviet Union goes, yes, we love them now. (laughs) And, you know, it's this whole weird thing. Um, We don't scare off other spies. It's not like espionage stops. Otherwise, why would we have this lovely museum, right? I right. mean, this goes on. In <laughs> fact, we have more spies what, in the 80s and 90s than we ever had in the 50s. And so it's not like anybody said, oh, wait, you might die. Okay, we won't. No. So spying still happens. And, and the, point that I, the part that I add to this is that we fail to convince the world that this was the right course of action. And certainly perturb and upset allies and freak out parts of the third world that say, well, how can you be democracy and freedom if this is what you think is a good idea? Right. Kind of well, and I think that you brought this up earlier, the idea that, that foreign and domestic policy are, are intrinsically intertwined. I mean, John Kennedy very famously said, trying to separate foreign and domestic policy is like trying, drawing a line through water. It's just impossible right. to do. And, right. and both of us have taught diplomatic history at the university level and just getting the students to understand that everything that happens overseas matters here domestically and everything that happens here domestically matters overseas, especially in the Cold War. When we're trying, I mean, the, Europe is stalemated. They build the wall, there's nothing happening. Mm-hmm. 
the battle is over the third world. And the third world is minorities. These are people who are looking at the United States and Soviet Union saying, who do we want to follow? And the way we treat, in this case, Jewish minorities or women, the way we treat our you know, non-waspy Americans really plays a role overseas. And you look at it, this execution part is really what they're arguing against. It's not necessarily even people who are convinced that they're guilty mm-hmm. are arguing right. against the execution. Because you look at this, soldiers, and you mentioned this in the book, soldiers in World War II who committed treason actually fought for the Nazis against the United States, just got life in prison. Um, and, you know, you say Ethel's the only, the second woman in U.S. history to be executed by the federal government for capital crime. The first one being... Mary Surratt, a right. Lincoln conspirator. Right. Somebody conspir- conspired bad, yeah, to kill bad. the president of the United States. So this is as, this is yeah. really as anomalous as it. I mean, this is an extraordinary case. It, it is, and that's why I think I think we have to see it as as first of all trying to make an example, like because if you truly believe that the Cold War is a fight to the death and and nuclear Armageddon is is potential, you know, is inevitable or or at least a possibility, uh, then nothing's off the table. Yeah, and you know, she's a mom. Well, if she was a better mom, she wouldn't have spot, you know, was their rationale, right? How how good a mom could she be if she had put herself in this position? Well, you hear that all and the time. I, the idea is like, she had a choice not to orphan her kids, you know? like okay. Yeah, but to do, I mean, yeah. she would have had to turn on her husband right. and probably name other people. And then those families would have been in the same situation. So, I mean, yeah, you you know, you spend enough time with this case as you have. You, you, you really, it hurts your brain to think about how they, what path they took and, and how, they, but I, I don't know once they're arrested and, and certainly once they're convicted and sentenced to death, I think they have very few options. Um, and so what, what's amazing to me is that the, that the federal government can't convince the world that this was necessary. Well, that's, and they were that's, so convinced that it was. Right. And that's yeah. the, that's the crux of your book. And really the extraordinary part of the story is how unbelievably bad both the Truman and Eisenhower administrations were dealing with the global propaganda in this case because both these administrations at this key point in the Cold War, the conventional wisdom is that they were pretty good at propaganda. And this is, they just fall on their faces with this. It's, it's embarrassing. You're, you're, you just think, and it's, it's this like, oh, wait, maybe we should do this. Like, I thought you guys were good at right. this. Like, I thought you were on the ball. And this, and, and always reacting instead of, crafting. Right. I, I do think that Truman, to a certain extent, by the end of his administration, I think, is getting it a bit more. But then, of course, he leaves. Right. And that awful transition, because I don't think Truman and Eisenhower were terribly close. Uh, and so any knowledge is lost. And Eisenhower comes in, and we know he has a real focus on propaganda. He has talked about this. He campaigned on this. We know he, he utilized uh, people during World War II. I mean, he's got you know, he, this is a commitment of his, but he's inheriting not only the Rosenberg case, but the Korean War. Right. With a brand new State Department. Yes. And you talk about this in, in organizations. You're basically losing all the institutional knowledge right. of the problem, where everyone who had kind of gotten the gist mm-hmm. of the problem overseas was gone. And right. since it was a Democrat to a Republican administration, there was no real crosstalk there. Not a lot of chatting. No, not a lot yeah. of chatting. And so you get a lot of, you know, you think, oh, we, we learned to, oh, no, now we're back at square one. And I think Eisenhower's in a tough position because I don't think he wrapped his brain around it. I don't think, I don't think, well, as we know, 
neither Truman or Eisenhower really knew about Venona. So mm-hmm. they did. So they all they had was what they were being told. And when you pour through, particularly the Eisenhower cabinet meeting minutes, the the agenda. There's the official minutes, and then there's the unofficial, like what they write out, the stuff that they actually heard. It, it's alarming, the confusion and the uncertainty and the, you know, Eisenhower at one point saying, why doesn't, this is like February of 53 before he does the first denial of clemency. He says, why doesn't, the, the, don't, why don't people get this? It's so clear. I can't, he can't wrap his brain around that this is, that this is not clear at all. Let me take a real quick two-minute break to talk to you guys about Blue Apron. So Blue Apron, again, if you remember from last week, their mission is to make incredible home cooking accessible to everyone. Now, if you've lived in D.C. or if you know the area, uh, we're, we're working on getting as good as New York. We're not quite there yet, but there's so many good restaurants in D.C. And there's so many good places to buy high-quality groceries, whether they're butcher shops or farmer's markets. But this can get very, very expensive. And so those who are spending a lot eating out or high-end grocery chains can now spend under $10 per person for a healthy, delicious meal. And I can tell you the meals I've had from Blue Apron rival the best DC restaurants. And the ingredients are just as good as those you'd get from an expensive store. Even when I do the cooking, the meals are great. Well, they're good. They're great when my wife does the cooking. As good as you get in any kind of restaurant. One of the great things about Blue Apron is variety. You can get pretty bored sometimes eating the same thing over and over. But Blue Apron has new recipes that are created each week by their culinary team and are not repeated within a year. So you always get something new and interesting. It's also very flexible. You can customize your recipes each week based on your preferences. If I don't like something on the menu, I can switch it with other options. The best thing to me is you can choose delivery options that fit your needs. There's no weekly commitment, so you only get deliveries when you want them. This is especially convenient. My wife and I travel a lot. She works in politics. She's bouncing around the country all the time. So it's great that I can just skip a week or two when we're going to be out of town. And as I've talked about, it's easy. Each meal comes with a step-by-step, easy-to-follow recipe card with pictures and pre-portioned ingredients that can be prepared in about 40 minutes or less. So check out this week's menu and get your two free meals with free shipping by going to blueapron.com slash spycast. You'll love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron, so don't wait. Blueapron.com slash spycast. Free food, guys. This is a no-brainer. You don't have to pay anything. You get free shipping, free meals. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. So let's shift back. Again, I, the, the fun part about this is, is there's supposed to be kind of a natural segue. It's just not the easiest thing. Well, I will say I'm a, I'm a big fan of Blue Apron. I have many friends who do it, and now I'm thinking I really need to just commit. Because yeah. well, I love you, cooking, but I, I don't like to have to plan ahead. I love the idea that everything's there, and then you just... It's brilliant. Well, I mean, it's brilliant. <laughs> I mean, the idea that you you get it delivered to your door and actually instructions and everything, and you get two free meals. So, so plug Spycast in and, and yeah. And some it of us try. don't live in delightful cities like you. Yeah. So, I mean, no offense to Fresno, and there are some lovely restaurants, but uh, it, yeah, this would be lovely. Well, Blue Apron is available in ninety nine percent of the United States, so it's it's in it's your neck of the woods. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Let, one of the things about your book that just blew my mind, and it shouldn't have, because I've read enough about the Cold War and about American assumptions about the rest of the world during the Cold War, but the major part of the problem here, and you talk about like you know, Eisenhower just couldn't see why the rest of the world was, was acting the way that it did, was this assumption that all protesters or anybody that didn't agree were commies, right? It's just like it's kind of some kind of active measures program propaganda by the Soviet Union that no one could legitimately argue against this unless they were being... Uh, a, a puppet of the Soviet Union. They couldn't come to terms with any legitimate disagreement to the case. 
which gets more difficult when the Pope comes out against <laughs> execution because I don't think anyone in their right mind ever thought that the Pope was in any way soft on communism. But uh, so, so when the Pope, and I, I suppose their perspective or the Eisenhower administration's perspective of the Pope was to downplay when he speaks out uh, in, and amongst themselves that, you know, he doesn't understand the broader concepts here. He just sees a family that's being destroyed. He doesn't understand the bigger picture. Um, but of course, around the world, the Pope saying communism bad, killing people worse, uh, resonates. It resonates throughout France and France's uh, uh, colonies and the colonies that are trying to get out from under France and, and throughout uh, Central America well, yeah, and Latin, Latin America, America yeah. and you know, so it's it's a, it's a problem in in Italy. It's a problem in Spain. It's a and it's a problem. I think right at a time when they're really trying to gather all of the religious elements within the United States and around the world to f- defeat atheistic communism. God's on our side, right? right? But this complicates that narrative because the Pope's not lining up. And he's not the only one. I mean, we've got, you know, Protestants and, and, and you know, bishops going to Eisenhower and Truman and saying, what's going on? Why are you doing well, this? Well, you, you, you get a great list in the book, Pablo Picasso, the chaplain of Queen Elizabeth, Harold Urey, who was a key player in developing the atomic bomb, even Eleanor Roosevelt and Arthur Miller. You know, this is right when the Crucible comes out, and there's a very clear, it's about, obviously, McCarthyism, but there's a, a clear undertone there dealing with the Rosenberg case. And, and what, what I found really interesting is that the government turned to a organization, uh, the, the Psychological Strategy Board, the PSB, to kind of handle the propaganda. And this, this was designed... For the broader Cold War fight, we're talking about members of CIA, DOD, state, Joint Chiefs of Staff, and even they had a hard time convincing people and justifying the punishment. It's fa- the, and, and several historians have done a wonderful jobs looking at the Psychological Strategy Board, which is such an odd, problematic organization. And Truman sets it up. It, it's kind of working. It's kind of not. They're trying to coordinate. They're not being told everything that the CIA knows, of course, and they're not being told everything that the, C- the State Department is doing, and they're trying to bounce off of everybody else, and and it just seems cumbersome. Eisenhower comes in and says, yeah, this is not working at all. So he basically stops listening. But the Psychological Strategy Board itself says, you know, don't issue clemency, don't issue clemency. Oh, wait, maybe we should. <laughs> so it looks like the world is starting to, right. you know, turn the other way. Let's spin it this way, um, that this is what democracy and freedom look like, that we're not going to create martyrs for the Soviet Union, all of this. But by that point, nobody's listening. But career ambassadors <laughs> and, and diplomats are also kind of starting to warn Washington about the backlash, saying maybe we should rethink this. But they, Washington, even though this is coming from their own people, yes. doesn't seem to listen. Eventually, you get people like John Foster Dulles even weighing in talking about, he said, this is the most troublesome issue affecting relations between the United States and these other countries. Henry Cabot Lodge, who was a UN ambassador, agrees to this. Mm-hmm. And, and they're saying that the key part of this is to make the case to the allies, um, because not doing this is really problematic. Yes, yes. And, and it's, it's astonishing to me. And, and as you read the telegrams, and I, I urge people to do it because it's really fascinating stuff. I tried to put little excerpts, and as it is, I feel like it's a bit of a document dump. Um, much better than the dissertation. I yeah, can I'm tell sure, you, yeah. my advisor can tell you how <laughs> our eyes bled reading that. But so many documents that were so fun that I wanted to include. Um, so I tried to put little pieces, but you really get the sense of desperation. And I use a C. Douglas Dillon because he's, he's so uh, prolific. Uh, I think we've got a total of 12 
telegrams when originally we thought there was just one. And so it's the, you know, starting with, it seems like a bit of a problem here. What's going on? Hey, whoa, we got it. Wait, I've got the, you know, the upper levels of the French government saying to me, what's going on? And I can't argue articulately what we're trying to do here. And we're losing. And he's very clear by March of 1953, it's not just communists. Right. It is aggressive anti-communist. It's, in, it's conservative leader. He is very adamant. And he just keeps saying, please help, please help. By the last couple of days, he's telegramming. I almost said email. It's telegramming. <laughs> email would have been quicker. Uh, you know, two, three times a day. Right. Like, what's going on? And you can see he's so frantic. And then it gets to that tipping point, and it's now too late. And the next telegram is, well, we should put out some statements so that it appears as if the president considered all the options. Right. Appears as if this this awful sense of, like, let's at least make it look like he cared Oh, it's it's devastating. And Dylan is a lifelong Republican. He goes on um, famously to be the Secretary of Treasury in the Kennedy administration. But he's he's as close to Dulles as just about any ambassador, and still not being listened to. Well, my my this is this won't be a surprise. Although it came across as one, and then I go, yeah, that makes sense. To me, the really interesting thing is the CIA and State Department showing extraordinary nearsightedness. By not only ignoring the legitimate protests, but using them to track and catalog communists. <laughs> They're like, thanks for all the information. We're putting these on our like no-fly list, essentially, at the time. Exactly. You know, forget the fact that we need to consider these legitimate protests. We're now going to use them to figure out who the bad guys right. are. And the CIA continues to do this for years after. They're mm. combing through these lists and, and complaining because, as they said, communists have bad handwriting and they can't tell what, <laughs> what it says. But, they, you know, we know they're all communists, obviously, because of the bad handwriting. I mean, there's this whole thing. But they keep tracking and, and taking the information uh, from some of the embassies and saying, okay, we're going to track these in the countries that they're particularly concerned with. I love the moment at one point where I think it might be Belgium where they they write to the State Department and say you know we've got boxes of letters you know what should we do with them and the State Department says we're not sure the sense of like we don't we can't get our wrap our brain around this we can't manage this propaganda campaign we don't even know know what to do with the paperwork like we're just it's just such I think they were just truly surprised now as the months go on you go seriously I mean just (laughs) why are you still surprised well I I mean in their defense and I don't know why I'm defending them but we talk about the domestic foreign policy overlap here and and Mm -hmm. I think we need to emphasize for the listeners that this is a diplomatic problem pretty much only that in the United States the majority of Americans Uh, approved the sentence vast majority of the press and this is when the press was working hand in hand with the government this is pre-Watergate so you know State Department can kind of tell them what they should be writing about and they for the most part they listen into that mm-hmm. so as far as domestic politics politics are concerned there's really no issue here this is something i mean i think you put in the book 67 percent of yeah. americans approve of the way eisenhower handled the case that's as good as it gets yeah. no his his approval ratings don't even budge at all i mean it, it's it, it it appears that that the Truman and eisenhower administrations are very good at selling this at home they have convinced the, the country and that's why it's so surprising that it's so abysmal overseas. Right. And even when finally you do get the Washington Post with an editorial. Is it the Post? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Washington Post comes out with an editorial um, pretty late, like late May, early June, that says, you know, maybe the president should look at how this is playing overseas and consider an alternate course. We don't judge 
Judge Kaufman for what he did. That made sense. But now the way it's lay in the lay of the land around the world, what this what we look like now, maybe the president needs to step in and, and, and adjust based on this new international reality. Well, you brought up Judge Kaufman. And I wasn't going to talk too much about him because we didn't want to deal with the case itself. But even he is like... Somebody help out. Yeah, I don't want yeah. to have to it's live with this. I'd really like to go to Paris someday, and yeah. I don't think I can. The FBI's like, don't go. No, yeah. it's going to be bad. You know. So, yeah, I mean, he even sees that maybe, you know, not changing not changing what he did. He believes he did the right, right thing. But this is, and, and that's it's the good and the bad, right? It's, it's the beauty of the appeals process is that we have this. The problem is that that means this goes on for two years. Yeah. Uh, and even that seems rather quick considering the current times, you feel like that would be a lot longer. Well, and it was extended and extended when the Supreme Court decided to take a look and then didn't and then did and then, yeah. Right. So it goes on for a long time and you've got time enough for protesters to get more angry and to really look into facts and the the problematic parts of the case and how it was handled and they, well, this can't be, what's going on? Maybe. And the death penalty is is the hard one to sell. What was around the rest of the world? It wasn't, I mean, still today, you know, I mean, we're the the only industrialized nation in the world that that still, I mean, not industrialized, but the only Western industrialized country that still has a death penalty. We we won't get into the politics of that. But, you know, Europe at that point had essentially had banned it across the board. Right. Right. And so it's a hard sell. It's a hard sell. And and knowing that they don't succeed in selling it, They, they can't quite. And you feel like there is a case to be made. I mean, if you're in that time and, and the fear and the paranoia, you can make the case, but you've got to be proactive about it and convincing. And it just didn't hold water no. in so many of these countries. Well, 1953 is a pivotal year in the Cold War. And of course, I've taught this over and over again. I never really, and it, was, it wasn't until your book that I made the connection to how this could potentially have impacted the Rosenberg case when it was at, you know, arguably that real kind of turning point, pivotal moment. Because you have Stalin dying, Korea ends. Uh, of course, they were blamed for Korea. Uh, Georgi Malenkov reaches out to the United States, sort of. You have this transition away from Stalinism. And, and McCarthyism is now making the United States look like the bad guy. People are starting some real significant backlash against Joe McCarthy. And this could have been a moment where some real reassessing took place and saying that we are now at a point where everything we blame them for, like Korea... Uh, you know, we had just developed the H-bomb and they clearly had no impact on Soviet development of the hydrogen bomb. Where this could have been a time where we said, okay, let's take a step back. You know, there's the chance to have a little bit of a thawing mm-hmm. in the Cold mm-hmm. War. Now, of course, that doesn't come till a little bit later when Khrushchev gives the secret speech, 20th Party Congress, etc. But Malenkov at least has some peace feelers out and you get Adams for Peace from Eisenhower. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Why don't they? I mean, maybe an unanswerable question, right? You're shaking your head like I don't so know. So frustrating. Either, but, it's yeah. so you just want to scream at the, you know, it's like stop, don't be, don't be so crazy. Um, you know, my my point. I think at, at the moment when Roy Cohn and his buddy go off to the book, the travesty. The tra- it, according to Roy Cohn, he said that was the only regret of his life. <laughs> Which is and an interesting statement are, unto it. <laughs> these are Joe McCarthy's minions, if right. you don't know. Yeah. Right. So yeah. they go to Europe and they're, you know, I call it a romp because it's really what it was. I mean, they dipped from, from city to city, sometimes not paying their uh, hotel bill, looking kind of ridiculous and, and pulling books off USIS, United States Information Service, Service uh, bookshelves, you know, because that'll make the world safe for democracy. <laughs> they're not p- 
pulling pornographic stuff no, off, too. No, no, it, it's, it's like, it, it's the Grapes of Wrath yes. and the Maltese Falcon. And, you know, it's like, yeah. And so it, it just plays so badly. And then when Roy Cohn, at one of the stops, brags about being part of the prosecution team for the Rosenberg case, that's when certainly many in, in France say, see, it's connected. This that case is really McCarthyism. Right. So they're seeing it as these people are completely innocent, um, which we know is not true. But but that's so. There's rea- their reaction is, oh, his connection means that this is you know this is all made up, and these people are completely innocent. And at that point, you really want Eisenhower to say, okay, <laughs> it's time to stand up to McCarthy. Wow, which You'd love for we him, know yeah. he yeah. does not really do. Um, and say, let's tone this down and let's have a reasonable. But again, I always say this. I say to my students, like, how do you have reasonable discourse when there's so much irrational fear well, or, I, or rational? Some would argue they were it was incredibly right. rational to be afraid. Well, and that's the issue that I mean, when I was teaching at Maryland, maybe five, ten years ago, not quite ten, but five years ago, you still had students who knew enough and experienced 9-11. Mm-hmm. So you could try to create an analogy between 9-11 and the early Cold War. Mm-hmm. Now you've got freshmen in college who were, you know, babies. And so they don't even have the fear of 9-11 to the kind of irrational decisions that we made after that, whether it was, you know, Patriot Act or, right. you know, uh, we, we, try, we talk about torture all the time here at the Spy Museum, of course, or enhanced interrogation. And you try to get people to understand context and say, we thought there was going to be a 9-12 and 9-13 and 9-14. With each of people back in the 1940s and 50s, who thought World War III was about to happen. Absolutely. That they were ducking and covering for real practice. They weren't just doing it because they had to. Yeah. And, and, and making people understand that context is very difficult. So you read it from a 21st century hindsight is 2020 viewpoint. And you're like, this is stupid. This is right. ridiculous. Um, and again, you can even understand the history around McCarthyism. It's total nonsense. But, but you we get know it, that right? now. But I mean, you can you get, get it. it. You can get right. it. And I think that's why I, I, I felt like I needed to take the time. And it, that's in part the beauty of teaching as well, right? Because yeah. you learn in your classroom. You go, oh, yeah. <laughs> you guys don't get this. Okay, let me let me set up why. Uh, and you can say it's an artificial construct of the Cold War and all of that. But what Truman truly believed, or what we believe he believed, is the inevitability of the spread of communism. And this was global conquest. And everything was a part of this game. And if that's, and it's a zero sum game. So if that's what you truly believe, then all of this, you can understand right. the reaction. It doesn't excuse, but you can understand the reaction. But I feel like by the time Stalin dies, right. there's that moment of can we just pause and take a breath and try to tone this down? And as a Republican, I think. Eisenhower could have done that with the popularity. Right. He could have spent some of that political capital and said, okay, work with me, people. This is what we're going to do. Could have taken what McCarthy Americans golfing do, you know? because that's, you know. Because he did a lot of that. Yes. <laughs> well, but I mean, this you, you see Oppenheimer lose security clearance in 54. And then, right. you, I mean, that that's that happens a year after this. And, and so, yeah, I, yeah. I, I, I think you're right. I think it's an explanation, not an excuse. Right. And I think... We, we have to, as, as educators, we have to couch that and say, look, I'm not trying to excuse the excesses of McCarthyism or the excesses of enhanced interrogation, but it's an explanation and really understanding as historians contextual frameworks of the time. And isn't that, I mean, that's, to me, that's the beauty of history is to be able to try to put yourself in that position. I can say when I first started this case, I did not have a good understanding. I actually got to the point where I was like, I totally get it. 
Truman was just so freaked out. And he's, you know, following in these huge footsteps. I mean, that's a tough job. And he's got, you know, okay, the first thing he does, he's got to, you know, he decides he's going to nuke Japan. I mean, you know, there's like, it's a, it's a horrifying job right. that he jumps into uh, with not as much preparation as we would have hoped uh, that Roosevelt would have given him. And then he's faced with what he perceives as this bifurcated globe. Now, we know now that, you know, China and the Soviet Union, that's not a, you know, they're not singing Kumbaya. It's not as tight as we, but if you're in that mindset with those glasses on, then that's how you see everything. Then every decision is reflected of that. So when he says the Rosenbergs gave the Soviets the atomic bomb, the, the Soviets say to North Korea, invade South Korea. We go in there to stop the spread of communism because it's our only hope. And we have got to keep this from ever happening again, because if they can get away with it in Korea, as Truman says, they're going to go into Iran. Right. And in the Middle East and control and every, the oil and everything. And, and he just spins the globe and starts right. pointing to places, yeah. you know, and, and you just, it, 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 it's hard, but you just say, yeah, it's fear. Fear is, it's very, very difficult to have a rational conversation when you're so afraid. Well, Laura, I, I can truly, I say this sometimes without a lot of emphasis behind it, but I can truly say that this brings a whole new perspective to the Rosenberg case. I, I highly recommend this book. It is called Executing the Rosenbergs, Death and Diplomacy in a Cold War World. We'd also like to thank our friends at Blue Apron for sponsoring SpyCast, for keeping SpyCast free, because that's the key idea here. We want to keep giving you great programming. We want to keep making it free. Uh, and so thank you, Blue Apron, A Better Way to Cook. Lori, thank you so much for taking the time to come here and talk to us today. We really appreciate your time. Absolutely, absolutely my pleasure. Thank you for the time. Thank you for listening to SpyCast. Remember, every Tuesday we will post a new podcast available from both spymuseum.org and iTunes. If you have any questions or comments about SpyCast, email us at spycast at spymuseum.org or leave a comment or review on our iTunes page. You can also follow us on Twitter at INTLSpyCast. That's INTLSpyCast. Talk to you next week. Hi, everybody. It's Maria Varmazas here, your host over at T-Minus Space Daily and sometimes a guest on Hacking Humans, too. We here at N2K CyberWire work hard to bring you concise, intelligence-driven news and commentary, and we'd like to know how we're doing. Please take a few minutes to complete our audience survey and share your feedback to help us continue to grow and meet your needs. Visit cyberwire.com slash survey. That's cyberwire.com slash survey to get started. Thanks so much for your input as we reach for the stars. It means the universe to us.